our fellow Christians and our, our, our friends and family and the chance we have to gather here, Lord, and learn more about you. Be with Ben as he teaches us more about your word this morning, Lord. Open our hearts and help us to, to leave this place and, uh, and shine your light on our community. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. We are going to be in First Peter, uh, chapter three, and we're going to cover verses eight and nine this morning. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, there was a, a quarterback for the Colts a few years ago. His name was Andrew Luck, and he was a quirky guy, uh, really quirky. He did a lot of odd things, and the way he retired from the NFL was really odd. Um, I'm a month younger than Andrew Luck is, uh, but he retired when he was 29 years old. He was one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL. He was entering what was supposed to be the prime of his careers. He would have made millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. Um, however, he simply just walked away from the game like in a surprising fashion, and he really has been out of the spotlight ever since he walked away. And so what made me think of Andrew Luck when I was walking through the sermon was not what he did during the games like to, to become a good quarterback, but there were all these reports when he retired of what he would say after he was sacked by a, a defender. Uh, he was known to compliment the guy who had tackled him. And so they said he was one of the best trash talkers in the league because you would be all amped up and you'd be aggressive and you would sack Andrew Luck for a big loss and then he would get up and he would shake your hand and he'd be saying, that was a great play, good job. And it would just deflate you. It's like you're amped up, you think you crushed him, like you think maybe you broke his arm and he's acting like it doesn't even hurt. In fact, he compliments you and now you don't know what to do with yourself. There's multiple, like I went through, I went through a lot of articles just reading, trying to find out some of the things that he would say and it was all of these defenders who are in the Hall of Fame now and all of these guys who are just like, we didn't know what to do. It's the only time somebody was that kind of nice and polite to us on a football field that just threw you off of your game in such a way that they really struggled after that. So you would sack him once, and then after that you were, what do you do? You, you're not aggressive when somebody's really polite to you. It's like, well, what do you say? Thank you? In fact, one of the articles uh, that I was reading called it his supernatural politeness in the middle of the game. I have no idea if Andrew Luck is a Christian or not. But what I do know is that the wisdom he used in those games to get a slight advantage in a meaningless football game is really something that the Bible teaches us as wisdom to use in life. And it's something that we're going to cover in this text here. So I want to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, and then we will pray and just walk through these two texts. <clears throat> Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you are called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today uh, looking at this passage of Scripture, God, that is just two verses, but two verses that are easy to understand and extremely hard to apply and to live out. As we look at what you're calling us to do here, really, God, what you're reminding us that we're called to do here, I pray that you would soften our hearts to your word, that you would grow us in you, 
that you would help us to understand your gospel better because when we can understand your gospel better, God, it makes living out this way possible. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the finished work of the cross, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, let's reread verse 8. Typically, uh, finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. So Peter starts this section off by saying the word finally. Now what he means here is he's not wrapping up his letter. Like if you look, we're halfway through chapter 3 and he writes five chapters. So he's just a little bit over halfway done with what he's telling us. He's not saying finally like I'm, I'm coming to a close. What he's saying is finally he's wrapping up this point that he's been making since 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Which has been this idea of how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives out. We're supposed to live our lives, conduct our lives in such a way that people see our good works wonder why we're able to do them in circumstances that are difficult and open doors for us to share the gospel with them. So Peter's told us, you use your citizenship for the glory of the gospel. You use your personal freedoms for the glory of the gospel. You use your uh, personal relationships, your most intimate relationships, your marriage for the glory of the gospel. And all of that is rooted in this theological foundation that Peter lays in the first half of this letter. Remember, he's writing to these elect exiles that have been dispersed across Asia Minor. He's passing this, like, he would write the letter, and then the letter would get sent to a church. They would write it, and then it would go to other littler churches, and it just passed its way around Asia Minor, all the way across that little area of the world. So when he's writing this, he doesn't have a particular people in mind. He has this kind of area, this this group of people, and he understands what they're going through. They are being persecuted. It's a social persecution. It's not like the government is saying you can't be Christians, although that's coming, and that's what Peter's kind of telling them is, is get ready. This this political persecution is happening, and so Peter tells them, remember your salvation. Remember the grace and the mercy that Jesus has lavished upon you. Remember that you're exiles, that this isn't home. Don't get comfortable. Remember that Jesus suffered. You're going to suffer. Remember that Christ suffered too. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forgotten you. He doesn't, it's not like he doesn't know what you're about to go through. Remember that your living hope is Jesus and he is not dead. He is alive. Remember that you need the word proclaimed to you. Remember that that everything else is going to fade away, but the word of God will remain forever. Remember the gospel, so be holy, be distinct, because God is holy and God is distinct. Remember that God has taken all of these scattered Christians, all you scattered people around in these exiles, and he's made you into a people of God. I want to reread uh, uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. It says this, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so what Peter is telling these people is this is your identity now. This is who you are. All of the circumstances that are going to pour onto you Come because this is who you are. You're God's people now. You didn't have mercy, but now you have God's mercy. You weren't God's people, but now you are God's people. So remember this and act like this when you're living out your life in Asia Minor, when you understand that you're exiles. So how? How do you live that out amongst the world? 
we can boil what Peter said down to do good when they do evil. Honor, respect, use what God has given you for the glory of God. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, if you're being oppressed by a dictator, uh, a ruler who hates Christianity and is trying to kill all of the Christians, you use that for the glory of God. He says, if you've been placed as a slave over a master, you honor, you respect your master in such a way that they might be one to Christ. If you're a woman married to an unbelieving husband, you live your life out in such a way that your husband might be saved by God. If you're a husband, you honor your wife as a co-heir of grace, not as somebody who's subordinate to you, who's less than you, but as somebody who God has raised up and is a fellow image bearer of God. You use where God has placed you for the glory of God. It's not an accident that God has you where you're at. And so that's what Peter's finally here is reminding us of. He's saying, finally, like all of those things are building up to this point right here that he's been saying. So he says, all of you. And we're Americans and we're Texans. By the grace of God, amen. We must understand there's a fierce individualism that runs in our blood, and if we're not careful, it can cause us to misinterpret some things in Scripture. One of the most helpful Bible reading tips I can give you is to ask questions about who the original audience is, because what that'll tell us is in American, when we say the word you, it can be singular and it can be plural, but because we're Americans and because we're Texans, when we hear you, we tend to think it's singular. When we want it to be plural, we say, you guys. I'm just kidding, y'all. So our default when we're reading scripture, watch, I've caught myself doing this multiple times. Our default is when we see the word you, we think me individually. What most of scripture does is, especially in the New Testament, is so much of the, especially Paul's letters, and even here, Peter's letter is written to churches. It's not a you, it's a y'all. It's a command to a group of people. And so this passage makes more sense when we understand it's y'all and not just you. If it's you, then it's these commands that were kind of ambiguous with, how do you keep these commands, right? If it's you, Ben, be like-minded. With who? Like, I've got a weird brain, but I feel like I'm like-minded with myself most of the time. So it's Y'all, be like-minded. So this means cooperation in the midst of diversity. You share the same thoughts, the same attitudes, the same actions as those who you've covenanted, you've committed with. So we as Christians talk about the church in a few different ways, right? There's this idea of the universal church, which is all Christians, past, present, and future, all of us belong together to this capital C universal church. And so we can differ with with some things within all believers, and we're going to differ with some things. But across Scripture, what is clear for Christians is the, the how we do church may differ from church to church and location, but the what and the why never differ. It doesn't matter if we're 500 years past, 500 years in the present, the what and the why never change. And there are many times in the Bible, the how of Scripture that we differ on is told to us. This is how you do things for the Lord. And we want to certainly say, if if the Bible says we do something a certain way, then we need to do it that way. But the beauty of the way God has set up Scripture, and the beauty of, we can brag on Baptists, right? We've done this really well. 
is we can say, and we can be proud of, each church ministers to its local community how it sees best fit. So in Baptist life, we call this the autonomy of the local church. It means for us as a body of believers, we don't have some organization that's above us. The SBC is not above us looking down, telling us what we have to do and don't have to do. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. We send messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention to set rules and regulations for them. They don't rule and regulate us. And so it means it's freed us to understand that in Ira, we are going to be the best people to minister to Ira because this is where we live. This is who we're committed to. And church in Ira is going to look a lot different than a church in New York. And church in Ira is going to look a lot different than a church in Los Angeles. We can be honest, a church in Ira is going to look a lot different than a church just in Snyder. It's this autonomy, this local idea that each church on its own is organized the way that they feel best fits within the parameters of Scripture to do ministry to our local area as best as we see fit. That's the way the Bible has set it up for us to be. Now, there are elements that cannot change for a church to be a church. You must have a proclamation of the word. If you are not proclaiming the word at your church gathering, it is not a church gathering. I believe you need congregational singing. We're commanded to sing and to fellowship, to rejoice with one another, which means when we say congregational is we're all singing together. We don't have Tanner does a phenomenal job, but we're not sitting here in awe of Tanner as he worships God. We are joining in. That's why we call him a worship leader. We are joining in with them as they lead us to worship God through singing. We fellowship. We pray together. Now, our church doesn't partake in the Lord's Supper every week. Some other churches do, but the rule of thumb in Scripture is you should take the Lord's Supper often, is what the text says. We don't baptize every week, and honestly, my goal is not to baptize somebody every week. That's a goal that I can't reach. I have no power within myself to save anybody, and neither do you. And so if we believe that baptism is somebody has been saved, and then they're baptized and they join the church, our goal isn't to baptize a bunch of people. Our goal is to be faithful so that people who are lost might hear the gospel and then be baptized. And so our goal as a church then is to baptize those who need to be baptized and disciple those who need to be discipled. Evangelize disciples, hand in hand. So unity then, this like-mindedness that Peter is telling us, isn't a vague command for individual Christians. It's for churches to gather together and say, this is how we are going to be like-minded, of one mind. We're going to be diverse. We're all coming from different backgrounds with different ideas. Some of you are, are far older. Some of you are far younger. Some of you have less, like, less miles. Some of you have more miles. It could be good or bad either way. But we're in it together unified together. At the end of the service, Mr. Jones will get up. He'll read our purpose statement after the announcements. That's our unified direction as a body of believers. That's our purpose for the church. We we exist to glorify God. That's the main goal. Everything else is telling us how we're going to glorify God here as a body of believers. So we're going to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Nowhere in the text does it say make converts. Nowhere in the text of Scripture do you get the idea of people get saved, they get baptized, and then you go live out by yourself on your own trying to figure it out. You get discipled. And it's not just that you get discipled and you get filled. The idea in Scripture is you get discipled so that you then can go and disciple somebody else. 
If it ends with you, you're misunderstanding discipleship. It's always meant to be poured into and poured out of you. So make disciples by being gospel-centered, by being centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will not move away from the gospel. We will only dig in deeper and deeper into it. And so specifically, we will do that through gospel-centered preaching, teaching, worship, community service, and multiplication. That's our purpose statement. That's our like-mindedness, our uniqueness as a church in Ira. This is important because churches split all the time over really bad reasons. There's this idea that's helpful for us. It's called theological triage. I didn't come up with it, but if you go to the ER, which we've been a few times, we're expert patients. If they had a punch card at Cogdell, we would have filled out a few of them. If you go to the ER and you're first in line and you have a broken bone, the receptionist will hand you a clipboard. She'll say, fill all of this out. There's going to be a lot of the same questions on it, and it's going to be this thick packet that you have no way of possibly ever filling it out. I think it's just to keep you entertained while you're sitting there. You sit down, you fill it out, and you're sitting there waiting. You're filling out all your paperwork. When all of a sudden somebody else comes in, and their arm's not broken, they have their arm in their hand like it fell off of their body, and they're bleeding and they're bleeding. The receptionist is not going to hand them a paper, like a a clipboard, and say, hey, fill this out, sit down, you're number two in line. They're going to say, come back here now. They will jump you in line. And do you know what I will do sitting in there? I'm going to stand up and I'm going to go to the receptionist and I'm going to say, this is not fair. I was here first. I should be treated with respect. We are frequent flyers here. (laughs) No. I say, yeah, you treat the one who's bleeding out. There are certain things that are more important, and and ERs are a great example for us, where there are life-threatening things that are going to take precedent over a broken bone. And so when we come to the church, we understand there are levels of disagreements. There are levels of things that, as a body of believers, we need to understand. There are level one issues. These are the issues that if we do not hold to these things, you are not a Christian. There are certain things you have to believe and you have to hold to, or you're just not a believer in Jesus. right? If you don't believe that Jesus is God and that he saved you, you're not a Christian. If you don't, the divinity of Jesus, justification by faith, the Bible is God's word and it's authoritative. There's all kinds of those things. There's all sorts of first-tier issues that you have to believe to be a, a Christian. And there's second-tier issues, and this is where it gets hard. There are things that are important, but there are things that are also differences, and it doesn't make someone an unbeliever, but it makes it really hard to be covenanted together with somebody and maintain unity. So this is where we must humble ourselves and understand and say, we don't have everything figured out about God. He's revealed to us what we need in his word, but we're going to have strong and important secondary disagreements where we can look at somebody and say, you're a brother and sister in Christ, but because we disagree on these things, it's just not going to work for us to be covenanted into a church together. So, for example, uh, a really easy one. We do two ordinances. We have the Lord's Supper and we have baptism. Now, our brothers and sisters in Christ at the Church of God have three ordinances. Lord's Supper, baptism, and they wash feet. Now, we don't look at them and go, gross, and you're not a Christian because you've added to it. We look at them and go, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, but if you come here and try to wash our feet, it's going to cause some disunity. It's going to be an issue. There, there are times, and I think it's important for us to understand, because it's not a, 
What I'm saying right now is not popular among church circles. The popular thing within church circles is to be very vague about what you believe, be very vague about who you are as a body of Christians to try to attract as many people as you possibly can. I think we've done ourselves a disservice. It's important for us to say this is what we believe and this is why we believe. And if somebody comes and they want to join the church, but there's some secondary beliefs that they believe in that we're like, we just don't, speaking in tongues would be a great one. We're not doing that here. I am adamantly do not believe that's what the scripture says. But there are some believers I know that do that, and I don't think they're unbelievers. And the best thing, the most helpful thing for us to do is not say join the church. The best thing is say, listen, we know a church that's a good, gospel-centered, healthy church, and they hold to that. Let's send you there too. We're not in a contest with other churches. It's not Ira Baptist versus the church of God, though we would win in a lot of categories. We're brothers. So, okay, all right. I see what we've got to do. Make fun of other churches. Okay, we're church crashes up now. I'm just kidding. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we understand that those things are important. We're not saying they're not important, and there's different interpretations. We can come up with that. But if we're going to side differently, and it's going to cause us disunity within the body where we're not going to be like-minded, the best thing for us is not to say, well, just come, we'll, we'll come figure it out, and then have this fighting that takes place which ultimately leads to a split and hurt feelings and hurt emotions and the church not being the church. Right? We're not glorifying God by doing that. Instead, it's important for us to be clear at the front. This is who we are, this is what we believe, this is why we believe these things, and if there's a disagreement to talk through those things, to walk through those things, and if it's something that we think is going to be an issue, lovingly say, we may not be the church for you, but this church might be. That'd be pretty radical, wouldn't it? Those are second-level things. Now, let's be careful, because there's some things that are second-level things that are actually first-level things how we come about understanding those second-level things matters. So speaking in tongues is a great example. I know believers who want to do that, and I hear their reasoning. They'll explain it to me from Scripture. I'm going to disagree with their interpretation. But we can hold to them and say, what you're really doing is saying the Bible is the most important thing. This is what you believe the Bible is saying. I understand your argument. We can be brothers and sisters in Christ and just kind of do things together, but we're also not going to worship together every single Sunday. We're not going to covenant together. We're not going to have that disunity. But I know others that will say they want to speak in tongues mainly because they think that God has given them a new word. That the Bible's not enough. That God is now speaking to us with a new word. That's not a second-tier issue. That's a first-tier issue. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is enough. That's where this gets tricky. Right? We are not going to be heresy hunters. It's fun sometimes. But that's not the goal. Our goal is to be gospel-centered, not go find everybody who's not gospel-centered and just poke holes in their theology. And so we have to be careful. This is why at our church, I love the new member class. We walk through what we believe. We walk through why we believe it. We walk through how everything's set up. And then we have people over. uh, We eat a meal together, and we just talk through the life. Hear your story. Hear how the Lord saved you, where he's brought you, all of these things. Three conversations I've had in the membership class here have resulted in baptisms. It's good and it's healthy for us to say, this is what we believe, this is why we believe it, and understand there are secondary differences that don't make us unbelievers with others, but but are enough that we say we're going to covenant not with you, we're going to covenant with brothers and sisters who are like-minded in this area. And then there's third-tier issues. 
These are small things that we might agree, disagree on but should never leave the church over. Wade and I have a third-degree issue, and it needs to be brought up now. And I have the microphone, and I told him I was doing this. Wade thinks that the best dessert at men's breakfast is the, uh, the sweet one, the French toast. Linda, discipline. Um, <laughs> the, best, the best breakfast that is at men's breakfast is the one with gravy on it. Wade and I have an adamant disagreement about this. Now, if Wade leaves the church because we have a disagreement on the best dessert or best casserole at men's breakfast, we have bigger issues. This is a third-degree issue. If you get mad that the carpet's not red and so you leave, that's a dumb reason to leave the church. There are third-degree issues that we're going to differ in. But those are not good reasons to leave the church, right? So you see kind of the order of how these things work. We're going to have some disagreements. We're going to have things that we don't always completely see eye to eye on, and that's okay. We've covenanted together as a body of believers to be a body that is in Ira for the glory of God, and so our unity doesn't look like we're all identical. Our unity looks like we are diverse in our backgrounds, we're diverse in our age, we're diverse in all sorts of things, but we come together for the glory of God and we work together as a body of Christ, setting aside second and third tier issues so that we can glorify Jesus as best as we possibly can. That's the idea when Peter says, be like-minded. It's a really easy thing to say and it's a really hard thing to do. Then Peter says, y'all be sympathetic. Right, y'all, be sympathetic. It means compassionate. You feeling for and with others. You're not hard-hearted, hard-hearted towards each other. The reality of this is this involves a close-knit relationship. It means you have to know somebody well enough for them to put their guard down a little bit, and they need to know you well enough to put down your guard a little bit. That they see your struggles, that you see their struggles, and there is sympathy and compassion for one another. Y'all love one another. This is a tangible love that's meant to be displayed by and for brothers and sisters in Christ who belong to the same church. Love is a reoccurring theme in First Peter. You know the verse, love covers a multitude of sins? We'll get to it. It's in First Peter. They're being persecuted. And what Peter is saying is the world hates you, so love one another. Love is wanting what's best for somebody else. That's how we we define it in our family. And what is best for everybody else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Y'all be compassionate. This is tenderheartedness towards others. It's it's a, a heart that is soft for one another. It's not calloused. It's not cold. It's not mean. Y'all be humble. C.S. Lewis has a quote that defines humility as, as best as I found it. Humility is not thinking, of your, thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And in reality, humility is the foundation of, of, of so much of Christianity. Without Jesus Christ humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, without God humbling himself enough to walk as a man on earth, we're doomed. If Jesus can humble himself from the divine throne of God, we can humble ourselves too. So this whole section that Peter's been talking about is telling his audience, you do good works for the Gentiles to see, and some of those good works are what Peter is listing. So, so it's encouraging here, right? Peter didn't give us a checklist. 
He didn't say, do this exactly. Go make sure the food pantries are stocked up. Check. Invite somebody over for dinner once a week. Check. Make sure you're texting somebody enough times to care about it. Check. He didn't give us a checklist. Instead, what Peter does is he gives us these heart attitudes that we're supposed to have throughout all of our life. God isn't saying, just say please, just say thank you, just say yes ma'am, just say no ma'am. Just give, he's saying, change fundamentally, let the gospel flow into your life and grow in Jesus. God, through Peter, is telling these elect exiles who are being persecuted and are about to have persecution, ramp up to focus on things like unity, compassion, sympathy, love, and humility. Not on fortifying your house and getting ready for a fight. Not on retreating from the world so that they won't see you. And Peter gives us an actual and a practical place to practice these things, the local church. So this begs us to ask, are we like-minded as a body of believers? Are we striving after the same goals? Or are we working on the side to accomplish personal goals and agendas? Uh, we're, we're one body made up of many parts. But are we working in cooperation with one another? We exist to glorify God through gospel-centered preaching, teaching, worship, community, service, and multiplication. Is that the goal of the church, or is there something else that's happening? Do we care about other people in the church? Is there sympathy and compassion that is tangibly being expressed towards one another? This is hard because we're all different. We all struggle and wrestle with things differently, but does your heart go out to others in the church? Are we loving one another? Love is, love is hard. And love is hard because the world says we should love, but they don't mean what the Bible says. We teach our kids, like I said, to define love well. Love means uh, uh, different things to different people. So when we teach, I teach my kids, I'm telling them love means you want what's best for somebody else. And loving what's best for somebody else is hard. But let's think about this. It's commanded here. Love is commanded, which means it's not merely an emotion. You can't command emotion. Emotions are dictated by circumstances. If I come home and there's a stack of oatmeal cream pies at my house, I will feel loved and I will be happy. I can't be commanded to feel that way. If they're, you, know, I, I, you understand what I'm saying? Those emotions are evoked because of the oatmeal cream pies. If I come home and I track mud in the house and because I did leave my shoes at the back door, which I know is a rule, I don't think Morgan is going to feel happy. It will be frustration at the ignorance of her husband. So, if love we see as an emotion, then how can Peter command love? The reality is it's not an emotion here. It's a choice, is what Peter is saying. Love is wanting what's best for somebody else, and so you love somebody by desiring them to know Jesus better whatever that looks like in their life. And so sometimes love is easy. You can talk about what the Lord's doing in someone's life. You can encourage, you can feel that love for them. Sometimes love is hard. It means that you confront people and say something like, brother, sister, you're doing something that is wrong and blatantly sinful. Let's figure out what's going on. Let's sit down together and sort this out together because I love you. The reality is the heart lies. And that's what makes love difficult. 
Our heart has been impacted and shaped by our sinful nature, but the Bible doesn't lie. So we love like the Bible calls us to, not like what our heart longs for. Sometimes your heart will be on the same page as the Bible. And sometimes they will not be. Don't let the heart win where it disagrees with God's word. How can we be humble? Understanding that our job as a church member is first and foremost not about coming here to get something. We do not exist to entertain you or your family or your kids, although it feels like that on Wednesday sometimes. We do not exist to worship you or your family. We do not exist for your wants and for your needs. You don't exist for my wants and my needs. Humility is understanding that the church isn't about you. It's about Jesus. So when you get upset about something, ask, am I upset because of pride, because I'm wanting something for myself or for my family, or is it a genuine reason to be upset in humility and in love and compassion and sympathy and in one-mindedness with others that needs to be corrected? We're going to have different preferences on worship style. This is a common one where people get, get into fights about. We're not worshiping you. Hear me clearly. The goal of our worship is not for us to enjoy what's happening. We want to enjoy worship, but if all our goal is with worship is to sing the songs that I like in the style that I like, we're misunderstanding what the church is about. It's about worshiping Jesus. The goal with these sermons is not for me to have a platform or a soapbox to vent all of the things I have in life. I've got some weird ones that we could get into if you want. The goal of these sermons is really not even to fill your head with head knowledge about Jesus Christ. The goal of these sermons is not to play with emotions and try to get you to sign a piece of paper or pray a prayer or line up to fill the baptistry. The goal of these sermons is to open the Bible, to expose the Word of God to you through verbal proclamation specifically for our church here in Ira. Expository preaching. Expose. That's where it comes to expose, expository. So my hope is that when you leave here, you don't go, man, the worship was great, or man, I did not like the worship. My hope is when you leave here, you don't go, the sermon was good, or man, the sermon was rough today. My hope is that when you leave, you think, man, Jesus is a great God, and the gospel is truly good news, and the word of God is enough. Peter's reminding us that those who read these letters the first time, that the world will do evil to you. That's what he says is do not pay evil back. Let's read it, verse 9. Do not pay back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, give a giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you might inherit a blessing. I heard a pastor say there's three levels of Christians' interaction with evil. We either return good for evil, which is satanic. We return evil for evil, which is human. Or we return evil for good, which is divine. Evil for evil, insult for insult is justice. You get what you deserve. And to a small degree, we are responsible for justice. But one of the God-given roles of the government that we saw when we looked at that passage when I was barely overcoming scours is one of the roles of the government is to encourage good and punish evil. And we as citizens of heaven and citizens of America ought to understand that we should work to define good as the Bible says good and evil as the Bible says evil. However, we can sleep at night knowing 
that in the end, God is ultimately the one in charge of justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. On the contrary, we're called to give a blessing. If you remember Genesis, this was in the covenant God gave to Abraham. You will be blessed to be a blessing. It's a common idea that's taught in the New Testament. And it's one of those things that in our head makes sense, but when it comes in practice, is really, really hard. We all know the verse, right? Turn the other cheek. It's just hard to do it. You know what Jesus is saying there, right? He's quoting the Old Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was the Old Testament law. And he's saying, but I've come to tell you, turn the other cheek. When we step back and we remember that you and I, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, have received unmerited and eternal blessings from God as the complete forgiveness of an unpayable debt that we have to a holy God who is infinitely more powerful than you and I and knows absolutely everything about our life and is everywhere because he is God omniscient, omnipresent. He's everywhere across the whole world. And because of his kindness and his loving action towards us by no reason of our own, not because we're cool enough or we're strong enough or we're smart enough or we love enough, but because God reached out and saved us from our deserved wrath that is from God and vengeance for our sin, then we should be pretty quickly and easily and free to forgive other people when they slightly wrong us too. As we grow in Christ, it should be easier and easier and easier to forgive other people. The more we understand about the grace that has been given to us by God, the more that ought to overflow into the rest of our life. It's one of the results of a gospel-centered life is that we forgive more quickly, especially since any human offense, no matter how great or mighty it will be, pales in comparison to the offense that you and I did to a holy and loving God who has never sinned before. We rebelled against God first, and God forgave us of that. So what is this blessing that we give? It means we love unconditionally. Wanting what's best for somebody else without conditions. We pray for the salvation of the lost. We pray for the sanctification of believers. We express gratitude over brothers and sisters in Christ. We encourage them and hope that they'll encourage you too. We pray for those who've wronged you and we seek forgiveness to those who we have wronged. Maybe you think, okay, Peter, that's easy for you to say. Do you remember Peter in the Gospels? (laughs) John MacArthur calls him the, past, uh, uh, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He's a hothead for most of the Bible. Remember the story of Jesus being arrested? Remember what Peter does? Somehow he has a sword, whips it out, and he just starts slashing it around, and he cuts off one of the ears of one of the guards. Before that, Peter is supposed to be praying. And three times Jesus wakes Peter, James, and John up. He's like, pray for me. And they fall back asleep three times. And so when Peter gets up, he gets a sword. He cuts the guard's ear off. And Jesus says, stop. That's not how the kingdom of God is coming about. Picks the guard's ear up, puts it back on his head, and then is ushered to the cross. Later that night, like Peter betrayed three times all of that is this apostle peter it sounds to me like right there peter is returning evil for evil is returning insult for insult i don't think peter was aiming for an ear with a sword i think he was aiming for a head 
He's just inaccurate. So Peter understands what he's saying. He understands that the natural tendency of the human being is for revenge. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You hurt my family, I'll hurt you. Or you hurt me, I'm going to get ahead. What Peter's telling us now as he's matured in Christ, as he's seen the resurrected Jesus Christ and he realizes the, the, the failure of his ways before. As he's, I mean, like, remember the story of Jesus. The rooster crows three times and he denies Jesus three times. That same night when he missed the guard's head and cut off his ear, same night he denies Jesus three times. And one of the times he denies Jesus is to a little girl. And as soon as the rooster crows, it just so happens to be that Jesus is walking through the garden and Peter and Jesus make eye contact and it shatters Peter and he flees and he leaves. And then we see in the story of John where Peter's back on the fishing boat and he's fishing and he apparently is not a good fisherman either because the two times we hear about Peter fishing, he can't catch anything unless Jesus is there. So they fished all night, they've caught nothing. Some guy on the shore says, cast the nets to the other side. Peter says, whatever, he does it. And he pulls so much up that the nets begin to break and then somebody says, it's Jesus who's calling to you. And you know what Peter does? puts his coat on and dives in the water. He doesn't care about the fish. He dives in the water to get to be with Jesus. The last time he saw Jesus was when he betrayed Jesus before the rooster crowed. And he gets over there and Jesus has three fish, or he has fish and some bread cooking on the fireplace. And Jesus, Peter looks at Je- Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know that I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Three times. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? There's a correlation. So now we get into this letter from this same Peter. What is Peter trying to do? Feed the sheep. He's telling us, don't do what I did. Evil for evil and insult for insult is the way of the world. But the way of the Lord is returning evil for good. When somebody wrongs you, you give them a blessing. It's not an accident when somebody treats you as evil. It's not an accident when when something is wrongfully done to you. God is not sitting up in heaven going, gosh, I didn't see that coming for them. My bad. He's giving us opportunities to live out a gospel-centered life in ways that are tangible. You can go up to somebody and tell them you're going to hell unless you believe in Jesus Christ and repent and turn to him, and they will put a hand to your face and they will walk off. But if you treat them good after they've treated you with evil, you will leave them with what we've called a stone in the shoe that is going to bother them for years. And may God use that blister to draw them to himself. God has planned for it to be this way, and he gives you and I opportunities to live out the gospel in this way question we have to ask is really just simply, will we do it? We're not supporting evil. We're not pretending like sin is not sin. We're not saying that that, that, uh, Jesus forgave me, he'll forgive you. We're we're saying those things are important, but we're going to return those things with the blessing because we've forgiven, we've been forgiven for sins like you're committing against me. That I'm free from having that kind of burden of I always have to feel like there's justice that needs to be done by me. Peter says that y'all may inherit a blessing. Word of faith, prosperity gospel teachers have hijacked the word blessing. It doesn't mean that your wallet's going to get full. Sorry. 
In fact, when we step back and we look at, well, what's a blessing that we could inherit that would make this worth it? It's Jesus Christ himself. The blessing that you inherit is that now we can live life with a contentment. We can live life with joy. We can live life where we completely rest in the gospel because if we're believers in Jesus Christ, that's what ultimately matters. So the circumstances of life are going to change and we recognize that those circumstances are changing are not beyond God's control, but rather God giving us opportunities to live out this gospel-centered, content, joyful life in the midst of a world that's chaotic. It frees us from the emotional highs and lows. And it centers us on Christ himself. That's the blessing. The blessing is you get a purpose in life. You're not just wandering around trying to figure out what you want to do. We get to glorify God in all aspects, in all circumstances of our life. All of that overflows from a gospel-centered heart. Which means, if you try to achieve those things without the gospel of Jesus Christ then what you're going to do is try to white-knuckle the steering wheel of your life. You're going to try to drive it where it's supposed to go. You're going to try to control all of these things, and you're going to be absolutely miserable in the process. The Christian life is not about white-knuckling behavior. The Christian life is about resting in the gospel and letting God remake us from the inside out so that these things overflow from a heart. We become believers in Jesus first, and from that salvation, as we grow in Christ, our life, our behaviors, our actions change. We see that the gospel unity in the church is important, so we seek it. We see the gospel forgiveness is a matter of all of our life. That there are people that I have wronged that I need to seek forgiveness for. There are people that have wronged me that may never come and ask for forgiveness from me. And I have to figure out a way to forgive them for not asking for forgiveness. It's frustrating. But it's free. We see that the gospel blessing is not physical and it's not monetary. The gospel blessing is none other than Jesus Christ himself. So if we repent, if we believe in Jesus, if we're unbelievers, you don't become rich, like, immediately on earth. You get something far more valuable. If we're believers, then we understand that this is not something that we can just change with our behavior. What we need to do if we're believers and we're struggling with this is we need to turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus in prayer. Turn to Jesus by reading scripture. Turn to brothers and sisters in the church together and say, help me walk through some of these things. Help me grow in these areas. Ultimately, we need to root down in the gospel more and more for the glory of God. As we make disciples who make disciples through gospel-centered preaching, teaching, worship, community, service, and multiplication. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that in just two verses, you have packed in so much for us. God, I pray as we reflect on these things, as as Tanner comes and leads us in a song, and as we worship you, that you would uh, soften our hearts, that you would help your word to reshape our hearts. God, we can't control, just white-knuckle change our behavior, but we know that you can change our heart, and if our hearts can be changed, then our behaviors, our actions, our feelings, our emotions can be changed. 
So God, first and foremost, I pray that you would root us deep into the gospel. Help us to find a renewed joy, a renewed love, a renewed commitment with you, God. And from that, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that the yous that you've given us here are y'alls. And that how we treat one another within just our little local body that you've placed here in Ira matters. So help us, Father. Help us to be like-minded. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to love one another better. Help us to be sympathetic. Help us, God, to be humble. I pray that you would use us to glorify you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.